Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Quick reminder of two things highlighted in the beginning of last episode. Get excited for it. Award show. Finalizing those. Remember, the only hint is the award you can also wear. So the trophy, that is. So, and then the literature review series, the pharmacist focused articles that we're going to, that I'm going to talk about and highlight are going to be voted on by you all. I want to make sure that we're highlighting the work that we all want to hear. So, um, two things coming, very excited to get more kind of involvement from that perspective. Now, today, another fantastic episode. So we're featuring a classic critical care topic and the most requested recurring segment. So, Janice Choi joins me to go into the management of a topic that hasn't had a guideline update since 2009, and that is diabetic ketoacidosis. And it's a race between DKA and stress ulcer prophylaxis on who will update their management guidelines first. But Janice and I go into so much, which fluids to use? How much? Is one protocol better than another? Is sub-Q ready for the spotlight? What's the harm with giving sodium bicarbonate? Euglycemic management differences and so much more. Uh, and then Medicine in the Media closes the episode out with uh, Jimmy Leonard returning to discuss three movies or TV shows and how they portray medicine. So we dive into it. Janice brought it up, but uh, prayers to all those affected by the tornadoes. Hope you and yours are doing okay. And lucky to be joined today by Janice Choi. Now, Janice is the trauma ICU clinical pharmacist at the University of Oklahoma with a research interest in electrolytes and fluids. Who better to come on and talk about diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA? Janice, welcome. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. Thanks for for the invitation. 
Now, for um, the listeners, let them know so that they can reach out to you. What's your tw- what's your Twitter handle so that they can follow you and and um, plug with comments or questions from uh, from the episode? Sure, it's um, gonna be my first name and then my last name, so it's gonna be T S U I T S Z Y E E. So Choi Z Yi. That's awesome. I asked the listeners um, for Janice to introduce that for the record because um, I thought we just needed her expertise to be able to say the full name, get all the followers here. So um, Janice, thanks for joining. Number one, I'm glad you survived the Oklahoma winter now that it were you're but, but we're getting close to Oklahoma summer. So what's the is it like a three week window on both sides where the weather's really nice or like what's what's that window? Yeah, so we ha- we always say that we have multiple springs. So I guess right now it's like the second spring um, before the real summer that comes. We also just survived um, multiple tornadoes. Oh. <laughs> Luckily, it didn't go through my house. My house is intact. Okay, so you, <laughs> you and yours are okay? Yes. Okay. It's always scary. You know, Indiana, right? Tornadoes. That is one of the things that we can, I can relate to. Obviously, Oklahoma, you're in the much bigger panhandle state of tornadoes there. But let's kind of shift gears, talk about DKA a little bit. And I would be remiss if we didn't start the conversation with discussing the elephant in the room. And that is the fact that when we're talking about DKA, the the management of hyperglycemic crises or basically the guidelines or the consensus statement by the ADA, they were last updated in 2009. So why do we think that is? Yeah, that is very interesting. So that guideline, I'm sure all um, our listeners are familiar with, is the one that's published by the American Diabetes Association in 2009. It's been cited more than 600 times. Um, and yes, it hasn't been updated since 2009. And I think the main reason is because we don't really have any um, randomized controlled clinical trial that show a different management method can improve either neurological or clinical outcome in these patients. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I dug into this as we were going to record for this. And, and the the ADA, they, they publish the diabetes care guidelines each year they update them and so there's a specific section the diabetes care in the hospital guidelines so two things stand out to me from that the only time that these guidelines are even referenced in the governing bodies 2023 guidelines is after the phrase individualization of treatment must be based on a careful clinical and laboratory assessment is needed but then it also, when they talk about needing further further information and directing the reader on more info for the like DKA, what we're focusing on today, but also HHS, um, it directs the reader to a textbook chapter, um, not shockingly published by the ADA, and two review articles. So I just think it's, I think it's very strange that we they updated them in 01, 06, 09, but we've had no changes since. And kind of speaking about that, you're right. I referenced 600 times, over 600 times, I believe that. So I think you mentioned all the listeners are probably familiar with this PDF. And specifically, 
there's a figure in that PDF, right? The classic <laughs> initial evaluation and the management. So how appropriate is it to still reference and use the information from that figure that is kind of referenced from a from the 06 guidelines? Yes. Um, believe it or not, um, in clinically, we actually still reference to that flowchart a lot. Um, one thing I think is, that I have changed in my practice recently, it's um, because of the introduction of SGLT2 or the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitor, we are seeing more patients with euglycemic ketoacidosis. So these patients, um, sometimes their blood glucose uh, are even really close to 250 when the DK was diagnosed. So, um, we have been using more titratable insulin than the flat rate insulin. So that's one of the main things that I think is different. Oh, those are, those are great teases. Cause we're going to get into both of those, both the <laughs> types of insulin and then the management of that euglycemic um, DKA. Um, so throughout the episode, right, you mentioned the ADA statement from 2009. Um, we're also going to be referencing the English guidelines. So the 2023 Joint British Diabetes Society, they released guidelines in March 2023, literally so hot off the press. Janice and I delayed this recording by 30 minutes so that we had time to take a look um, at them. One thing of note, if you're going to pull these as you're, as you're listening or looking at these, is they reference blood glucose in millimoles, and we use milligrams. Yeah. So get that table <laughs> out. It's going to look very strange. Um, but other than that, it's, uh, the, the stuff looks very, very uh, similar. So we'll kind of be referencing those things throughout the episode as we talk about some of uh, the biggest questions. Now, Absolutely. When we go through and we're talking about DKA and, and diagnosis, like knowing and recognizing that can help a diagnose DKA, but I think it can also help rule out the same diagnoses, right? I think how many times or do people come up with this? It's like, oh, they're in DKA and we look at the labs. It's like, I don't know, really? So what disease states or what patient populations can look or mimic um uh, some of the labs or um, uh, symptoms seen in patients with DKA? There are other problems that our patient faces that can put a patient into ketosis. So, for example, like starvation or alcoholic ketoacidosis, or even just a patient with diabetes that presents to our trauma service that happen to have a lactic acidosis. Um, a lot of time, um, I see one of the pitfalls in, like, Interns or medical resident is when they see a patient with low, with a low pH and hyperglycemia, they just kind of jump right into the conclusion that this patient is having DKA, and they order all the fluids, all the labs, uh, without think, looking at their actual ketone level and um, checking beta hydroxybutyrate. Um, management of DKA, the most important first step is really establishing the correct diagnosis in the beginning. So how do we do that? What are what are some of the like laboratory, I guess you'd say, um, objective criteria yeah. and some subjective criteria that goes with that? We would check a blood gas. So that pH um, needs to be at least less than 7.3. The serum bicarb would be low. So that bicarb needs to be less than 18. Um, either they need to have a positive urine or serum ketone level. 
um, and also these patients will have anion gap acidosis. So the anion gap will be more than 12. Um, these are the objective lab that I will look for before making the actual diagnosis for DKA. And also checking beta hydroxybutyrate. That's very specific. Yeah, and that's that's kind of like the serum, right? Looking for that serum kind of ketosis or or a ketone bodies, and um, the big difference when we're thinking of like the U.S. versus the U, the U.K. is you mentioned the anion gap, and the ADA mentions the anion gap in the in the diagnosis, and the um, the British Society does not. Um, that's kind of the biggest difference, but everything else is spot on in terms of the. Um, ketosis, the um, bicarb level, the pH, um, all of those things. You mentioned a lot of those specific labs that go into the diagnosis. What are what are some of the most important things that drive the severity of DKA, kind of mild versus that severe that we may see ultimately in the ICU? Yes, absolutely. So um, the pH, if anything less than 7, um, severe altered mental status, um, that undetectable bicarb um, definitely will put this patient in our, to be one of the reasons to sell this patient to our ICU. And and part of that is because of the risks that come with that. When your pH is less than seven, all the complications. So you want to be in a place where you can get that that increased monitoring and make sure that things don't, don't progress. Um, when you're thinking about those severe things. So yeah, that's a a really, really good, good point here. Now, when we're treating DKA, what's our, what's our first kind of treatment of action? What's the first thing that we, that we kind of break out of our toolbox? Yeah. So DKA, um, it's a diabetic ketoacidosis. A lot of residents, they kind of rush into like getting these patients some insulin. I'm going to get my insulin vial, keep a bolus. Um, Yes, the insulin is important, um, but our first line treatment is actually fluid. So a lot of times these patients are severely dehydrated, um, both intravascularly, interstitially, intracellularly. So um, just giving them a lot of fluid bolus in the beginning to restore that uh, organ perfusion is key. Um, according to the guidelines from 2009 and also... Um, also, our current practice, at least we would give 15 to 20 mils per kilo of total body weight or 1 to 1.5 liter of fluid during the first hour. That's the first thing you get a fluid bolus. And we, why are we waiting for results of your labs? So, and, and that's... and. Like those guidelines have, I, you know, I kind of looked into those and, and that kind of broad recommendation, there's no further really specification from there. So we start with fluids and resuscitating. Um, are there patients that we modify that for? Like does every, is this like sepsis where everybody's getting 30 mils <laughs> per kilo or um, are there some exceptions to the rule of kind of that aggressive resuscitation up front? Yeah, so... Um, as we know, patients with like renal failure or heart failure patient, um, they definitely may not be able to tolerate that much fluid. So this is when the clinical judgment comes into play to assess the fluid status. Um, there is unfortunately not any clinical trial published that compared different volume of 
um, fluid given to this patient during the initial resuscitation phase. So I think if you know your patient has heart failure or end-stage renal disease, um, knowing doing that fluid assessment in the beginning before you give the fluid is key. And I love the the British guidelines actually kind of recommend giving the like 250 or maybe 500 ml kind of aliquots and doing that. And I think that kind of puts in into writing what we do in practice in these vulnerable populations. Um, but I think that's an important point. Uh, Jane is bringing up that there are there are patients where that aggressive fluid will actually do us much more harm in the long run than good. Um, but that you know a lot of those patients are dehydrated, do need that fluid up front. Um, so is there any evidence or an argument to use balanced fluids compared to what we, what we call it on, on the pharmacy to dose podcast, abnormal saline. And I want to let the audience know this is a leading question because one of the reasons that, that I had invited Janice on was uh, she was one of the authors in an awesome systematic review and meta-analysis looking at this exact question. So Janice, kind of take it away and let us know what you, what your, you and your researchers ultimately found. Yeah, so um, in the past 10 years, like multiple trials has shown that um, like balanced fluid that contain less chloride than normal saline. As we all know, normal saline is actually abnormal saline. It contains 154 of chloride, a millimole of chloride per liter, um, and hyperchloremia is associated with acidosis. So multiple trials, um, including our group from U of Oklahoma um, and also the group in Australia, um, published study show that if we use a balanced solution when compared with normal saline, um, the time to improvement in time to resolution of decays is significantly improved. Um, and also, the Vanderbilt group that published the SALS ED and the SMART trial, um, they did a separate analysis in their patient specifically those that have DKA, they have found the same results. So actually in our institution, um, we really try to use balanced fluid like plasmolytes for initial resuscitation in patients that have DKA. I, it, ironically, I think, you know, we've highlighted a lot of the fluid tr- like um, trials and, and information looking at balanced fluids versus um, abnormal saline. And I think I'd, you'd argue that the data in the DKA patient population is one of the highest quality looking at the benefits of giving it. Um, it's not just yeah. one or two. It's a, it's a review. It's subgroups. It's an actual trial, right? You're getting, you're getting those, you're getting those positive signals from all different types of research. Now to play the other side, right? I, I, I do like to play both sides um, here because the one argument for normal saline when I was looking into this or to use it is that in especially smaller hospitals, normal saline is available commercially mixed with potassium and our balanced fluids or specifically lactated ringers is not. So if you don't have a as much of a capability to compound things, especially after hours, probably want to have some fluids with potassium in it. So that's the one where it's like, 
okay, I, I touche. That's a, that's a decent argument. Um, but I think there's plenty more arguments for outcomes and things, but that's, you know, thinking of thinking of all the people, all the, the hospitals and things that may be listening. That is one kind of thing I wanted to, to bring up, but everyone knows this is, we're team balance fluids here on, on pharmacy to dose. So, um, that was a really good example too, by, of people getting excited, ordering the massive DKA protocol with like 30 things that you then have to uncheck and, and DC later. So we get the fluids and then we get in, we get going into like the insulin itself. So focusing first on the, on the IV insulin infusions. And like you had kind of mentioned talking about the titratable versus, versus fixed dosing protocol. Now for the audience, fixed kind of means a set rate of insulin is given at each hour, typically weight-based I mean, the titratable kind of means that the insulin rate changes each hour based on blood glucose checks. So, Janice, do we have evidence that maybe one protocol um, is better than another? And and if it is, let us know what better what what better is, because I think that could also go in a multitude of ways. There are some um, retrospective studies um, that show that possibly, especially the one by Kinney, published in twenty eleven show that um, titratable insulin may have a sh- those patients that are on titratable insulin drip may have a shorter hospitalization stay than the flat rate but um, all of these studies are retrospective single center um, I don't think um, I I think it depends on the situation of your patient for example like if your patient it's like it has a higher risk of hypoglycemia or have the euglycemic DKA I can see that titratable insulin drip may have a role, but currently um, in our institution, we still start with the flat rate of insulin. And when we talk about like titratable, we can titrate the insulin drip and we can also titrate the dextrose. Mm-hmm. So that's actually, um, some depending on where um, our listeners are trained, uh, some hospitals actually u- u- utilize the two-back system um, that uh, the group from Michigan published a study in 2018. Um, basically, once the patient's blood glucose hits less than 250, they are titrating. Um, if their blood glucose is less than 250, they're giving them more dextrose. And if it drops even further, they give them even more dextrose. And the reason behind is because this is really a metabolic derangement because your cells are starving. So you wanted to give them insulin and in order to give them insulin and maintain a good glucose level, you have to give them more dextrose. So I can see either way being a good protocol for your, for our patients, depending on the insulin level and how sensitive your patient is. Based on your experience, what's your, what's your preference? Oh, um, I really like so I deal with a lot of trauma patients and they're usually like younger type one diabetes. Um, the flat rate works really well. And I feel like the older patients, um, that, that type two diabetes, the titratable works better. Um, our, our institution, um, currently don't use the two back method. So, Everywhere I like my first hospital out of training, we used the titratable and we had this crazy chart that was because the argument for titratable (laughs) is you want to prevent a rapid, 
a rapid decrease. Like that's the argument is it takes into account the rate at which your levels are decreasing too. But my current institution uses fixed, like the guidelines recommend kind of that 0.1 units per kilo per hour. I'm a convert. I'm a convert. Hand up, Janice. I thought I was a team tie tradable, but the fixed is just, I mean, there are times that, that you have to decrease the rate to 0.05 or even 0.025 or go up on that dextrose infusion. Like you mentioned, um, the more I was thinking about it, I bet there's more research on the fixed rate just because it's easier to research, right? That's more of a research setting because there's so much human error that can happen with our titratable infusion. I think most of the studies um, looking at DK and insulin and like ICU outcome utilizes the fixed dose. Yeah, that's that's what I've found. I, th- I think they... We know holding IV boluses are a good thing. We don't necessarily need to give boluses right in the beginning of the DKA. Dropping the, the glucose isn't that great. But I think it's going to be specific to your hospital and your patients and your nurses and things that are going to play a part into what, you know, might be better in terms of like a titratable versus fixed there. Um, now, one thing that I think's gained a lot of traction, I think maybe 10 years ago or so, the idea of sub-Q insulin for the management of DKA was, uh, I felt like it was kind of one of those things that was like talked in the back rooms. It was kind of like a research type of thing. But is that becoming more mainstream in terms of evidence and adoption? Are we seeing, like, is it possible that a lot more hospitals are using like a sub-Q protocol compared to kind of what I classically and what we classically think of DKA, the, the IV insulin infusions? Yes. So I actually have a provider ask me this question the other day, and the thought process behind is, uh, will giving the patient sub-Q prevent an ICU admission? So there are some studies looking at the sub-Q reduces cost um, of the patient, of managing the patient compared to the IV infusion. Um, Most of the cost saving was driving from not being admitted to the ICU. So I thought that was interesting. But when I look more into the actual protocol in these studies, they're actually giving the sub-Q every two hours, some protocol giving them every one hour. So I don't Uh know what is the nursing ratio on the floor in your institution, but our floor nurse will not be able to um, provide that high level of care. And all of these studies are, published before 2010 with less than 30 patients in the study. So I'm not sure the um, like external validity of it. So I think if you are already checking your patient's blood glucose every one hour, might as well just give them an insulin drip. Um, there is an abstract um, by Cortez, the group from Texas, um, looking at comparing sub-Q versus IV they show a numerically faster time to DKA resolution, but um, I'll be interested to see the manuscript coming out in the future. Yeah, it is. You you hit the nail on the head with it all comes down to um, wh- how are our nursing colleagues going to be able to do this? Because um, I think of the sub-Q less of a way to prevent an ICU admission and almost more of a way, like, can we prevent a hospital admission, right? Is this something that could happen in the ED where you could kind of close that and get them out? Um, Because I actually, to me, if you asked me, that idea of giving sub-Q every two hours on the floor, 
I feel like there's more risk with that. <laughs> Depending on what your ratios are, right? Where everyone is short in the world of everyone being short staffed, you know, forgetting to check that glucose, that that would make me a little more nervous, I think, than the than the infusion where you can can at least turn it off. I agree. I totally agree. And so many drawing and, and calculating and it's just it's easy. I think it's actually easier to use the drip at that point. Especially if it's the fixed rate. You're absolutely right. Um, now what are our treatment goals? And I, I guess a, a better way of phrasing that might be when are we able to kind of transition off of that IV infusion and more into our traditional sub-Q basal bolus regimen or the pump or whatever they they use to, to manage things? Yes, absolutely. So CK is definitely a metabolic derangement more so than a glucose problem. Um, so our, in order to transition to quote-unquote home regimen or, or like a basal bolus subcutaneous insulin regimen, they really need to have all the lab derangement resolved, the one that we discussed earlier, so their pH needs to be more than 7.3, their bicarb definitely needs to be more than 18, they need to have no ketosis at all, like they cannot have any ketone in the serum or urine, um, beta hydroxybutyrate trending down to almost undetectable, um, the anion gap needs to be normal, they need to be awake to be able to eat a normal meal, so these are the things that I look for. Um, before I would transitioning them back, go to the floor or uh, transitioning them to sub-Q. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is there specific guidance on how to transition from, like, I guess you'd say the acute management of DKA with that infusion as it relates to timing or the type of insulin or overlap or anything like that? Yeah. So one of the pitfalls I see um, on the ICU, maybe on the weekend when there's no clinical pharmacist rounding with the team is uh, when the team see the patient, oh, glucose is good. Like most of the chemistry looks good. They just kind of turn off the drip and think the patient is resolved um, without starting the patient on a basal bolus insulin regimen. And the patient just kind of flipped right back to DK and then came back. Um, so it's very important to, we have a, so in our, in our institution, we definitely give the basal insulin, whether it is an NPH or glargine, at least an hour, make sure the patient is eating and then we will turn off the insulin drip um, and we'll check up blood glucose two hours after and before meals and make sure the patient's tolerating this regimen and then we will safely say, okay, the patient can transition to sub-Q, tolerating it, no problem. And part of the thought of that, of that, right, with the whole overlap and transition is to prevent that rebound hyperglycemia. Because there's nothing, 
it's just a bad look when you get when you transition off of the infusion at DKA and then when you have to reorder it, right? When you got to reorder the drip and the infusion, the gap opened up. It's just something that you want to, uh, in the words of the hangover, it's just frowned upon, right? So I think that's what we're trying Absolutely. to prevent there. <laughs> and for all the basal insulin, the NPH or the glargine, it takes a couple hours because for it, for your body to absorb. So we really need that overlap of an hour to just make sure, especially for our Taiwan diabetes patient, to make sure they don't have like a nadir level of insulin. Now we've been focusing kind of our discussion on efficacy and treatment, and let's kind of move to safety. So I think that's another really important piece when we're thinking about DKA. Um, And specifically, what are things we can do to help prevent hypoglycemia while we're treating DKA? Because that's, I think, when we're treating of our, when we're thinking of our two goals, right? The first thing we want to do, resolve that acidosis. Number two is prevent the adverse effects like hypoglycemia. So what are some strategies that we can do to do that? So Nick, that's a great question. So uh, patients who are at higher risk of hypoglycemia include those that has impaired renal function, patients that are older, um, patients who have diabetes longer, and those who have like lower socioeconomic status. All these are risk factors in systematic review that has been shown that they have higher risk of having hypoglycemia. We definitely need to uh, monitor their blood glucose more closely. So um, in our ICU, um, ideally, we will want their blood glucose less than 180. Um, but I think most importantly, we this is a metabolic derangement. We need to make sure that um, all the other labs are normalized. Um, so not just managing the glucose level. Is there even any advantage to like having more aggressive blood glucose control in DKA? I don't think so. I think it's more the... You can just follow your institution protocol on what type of glucose goal that you have, for example, for our surgical trauma patient, anything between 120 to 180 would be okay. Yeah, I I think that what we were finding with with the blood sugars, almost regardless, is that, um, you know, we don't want them out of control, but that, you know, hypoglycemia and dropping too low is what's really bad. And that aggressive control increases the risk of that. Um, So I think, yeah, like you said, there's so many other electrolyte acidosis derangements. Why would you put yourself at risk for hypoglycemia targeting, you know, 100 to 140 when you're going to be on the drip for 18 hours, you know, taking care of all the other things happening around? Yes, absolutely. Thinking about hypoglycemia, what would you say is your bigger concern, the actual blood glucose or the rate of the drop, like the percent per hour that it decreases? Yes, I think they are both very important, especially for our Taiwan patient that would present with like blood glucose undetectably high. Um, there's always this theoretical risk um, of like osmotic demyelination of your brain tissue. So um, I think anything like dropping more than like two or three hundred over an hour would be really concerning to me. Um, and obviously, if it's like very, very low, like less than 80, 70, 
the insulin, we would have to give the patient D5. That's important too. But both are actually very important. You brought up a good point. Yeah, kind of things to think about, right? When we're, if there's learners, right, who are kind of working those patients up in the morning, you know, it's it's looking at not just the rate, but if, if it went from 500 to 210, that might put up a little bit of a red flag and might go investigate a little bit. So when we're on the, we're thinking of kind of the DKA, right? We're going back to the figure. We hit the fluids. We hit the insulin. Now the other big piece is the electrolytes and that acid base management. So I think we got to start with the heavyweight champ of the electrolytes, potassium. And oh yes, specifically, mm-hmm. is there a level of hypokalemia um, at which you would be concerned enough to hold the insulin infusion? So is there a point when we're monitoring that K that if it drops to a certain point, the risk of it dropping further outweighs continuing that infusion? Yeah, absolutely. So currently um, in our institution, you have to have a potassium more than 3.5 in order for the insulin drip to be started. Us too. Um, and also, it takes a couple hours for the chemistry lab to come back. So um, I would really want my patient to have potassium more than four, and I will continue to supplement potassium while giving the insulin. Well, that's the great thing. It's all compatible, right? And so... Oh, yeah. Yep. You, you, you start that. You start the fluids, hopefully containing K. You start some supplemental. You get a K rider with it. Got the infusion. Yep, that's you kind of all piggyback into one. Is this the, you mentioned holding for a potassium less than 3.5. That's what our, uh, my institution does as well. Is this the only electrolyte that you'd hold, you'd consider holding the insulin infusion for? So other than potassium, I feel like my learners always forget phosphorus. A lot of these patients, um, they can have some sort of starvation or um, a lot of time they are sick. They have not been eating. They're actually, the false are also very low and giving them insulin can definitely drive more false into the cell. So you'll, we, you'll be surprised with a false of like less than one. So definitely um, after ordering chemistry, I always add on the MAC and the false and make sure that those are replaced as well. Foss, I, it's the underrated electrolyte. I think it's the MVP. Um, now, now playing both sides of the card here, um, the ADA and the British society do not hold phosphorus in as the same high regard that we do. Um, but they basically say only give it if it's less than one, which I think if your FOSS is less than one, you're getting the double exclamation points on the, on the labs. And so um, <laughs> it makes sense that you would, you would replete that, but yeah, make it. And then right. The other Pearl, if you're, if you have an issue with getting your K up, just give some mag, you know, that's one of those mags, the cofactor in the, in the pump. So if you're, if you can't get that potassium up, that's kind of a good Pearl to, to give some of that. If you haven't got a lab there um, now, We've hit, we, we, I don't think we've hit the, the really controversial piece of DKA management until right now when we shift into kind of the acid base piece of it and specifically the treatment of acidosis in DKA with sodium bicarb. So let's talk about it. Why is this so controversial? And let us uh-huh. know what's the possible harm, I guess, in these patients of giving sodium bicarb. Yes. Yeah, so if we, reviewed 
our beloved 2009 guideline, they, they actually don't recommend giving bicarb until the pH drops below to 6.9. Like, yes. So there's multiple. So this is a diabetic ketoacidosis. It's an acidosis problem. Like very intuitively, you would think giving bicarb, just go ahead and just neutralize the acid in your blood makes sense. But actually, um, there's a meta-analysis um, by Chua. Um, they looked at 44 studies and actually failed to show improved in clinical outcome by giving bicarb. Even specifically when they look at patients with pH less than 6.9. And also, like theoretically, there's some concern when you give sodium bicarb infusion. So Okuda um, and colleague demonstrated that um, if you give bicarb, you can actually raise the serum keto acid anion level and delay ketosis resolution in patients. And in some animal study, it can also show that sodium bicarb administration can accelerate ketogenesis. So there's some theoretical risk of worsening your ketosis, and it's also never shown to improve outcome. So, so I would say um, it's not completely contraindicated if your patient is like, Super acidotic, and there's like multiple factors going on. Maybe they have some renal problem. But if you are just giving it just to correct the pH, that may not be the correct thing to do. Yeah, this seems like an individualized decision. And just blindly seeing a pH of seven and just giving them three amps of bicarb or whatnot doesn't seem like the way. But like you said, Maybe they have AKI, their pH is 6.9, they're hypotensive and they're talking about pressure. You know, maybe giving a little bicarb, right, risk-benefit might outweigh there. But in, in the general population, and I thought you did a really good job of not only explaining some of the controversy in terms of what it does to outcomes, but the physiology behind it. Because I think that is sometimes a confusing piece of this of, what's the risk, right? A lot of times that's the, when, when people want to give something and they don't like your argument, that's what they'll say. Well, what's the risk of giving it? So I, I thought you made a really, a really good point and argument for avoiding its use, except in those specific patients. Thank you. So with the advent and the use of the SGLT2 inhibitors, I think a lot of us are seeing and treating more of our euglycemic DKA. So what are some kind of principles to keep in mind that our, uh, that our management might be, might differ specific pieces of it in these population versus our standard DKA patient population? Yes, absolutely. So with more and more patients with like heart failure or CKD or diabetes, um, being on SGLT2, mainly dapagliflozin, um, and empagliflozin, we are seeing more and more um, euglycemic DKA, meaning they um, have all the metabolic derangement of DKA, but their blood glucose was less than 250. So um, the Joint British Diabetes Society guideline from Europe that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast actually recommend that um, for these patients who has a higher risk of hypoglycemia, we can de-escalate the infusion rate from the usual 0.1 to 0.05 units per kilo per hour, just because these patients are at a higher risk of having hypoglycemia. And currently in our institution, 
for these patients, we'll just go ahead and start them on a titratable insulin drip um, so to reduce the, the risk of hypoglycemia in these patients. Unfortunately, this is really an area for more research because there are more and more patients being put on these drugs and we are seeing more euglycemic DKA. So I'll be interested to see more studies coming out in the future. Yeah, that's a, a really good point in that I think our um, radars up even more than normal for that risk of hypoglycemia. Um, and that that is as much as we don't want to have different protocols for different patients. I think sometimes you may have to differ a little bit in the euglycemic in terms of just the sheer amount of insulin that they're getting kind of in the beginning there. But yeah, we've mentioned a lot of the kind of multi-center research groups and people are looking for research ideas. Um, I think finding factors or, or getting some published in these in this area would be really helpful for a lot of us. Um, yeah, it's, and it's residency research time, right? End of April. So here we go. Um, so this has been a, a, an awesome discussion, and we're talking a lot about from beginning to end taking care of these patients. So what are examples of things that, that pharmacists or other kind of members of the multidisciplinary team can do or focus on to help improve the care of, of these patients that come in with DKA? Yes. Yeah, so I think education to nursing staff about different insulin drip protocol is always important um, because like the titratable and the flat rate is really two completely different protocol. So we, with the turnover of nursing staff in our institution, we find ourselves constantly has to, have to explain like, why are we doing this? Why are we not titrating? What are we actually looking for? Um, like the blood glucose target versus like the metabolic derangement resolution. Um, and also compliance um, is important to stress to our patients um, to take the insulin because um, currently like the top reason for triggering DKA is still non-compliance is definitely the big three. Um, second one would be infection or any type of like for our, for our trauma ICU population, just like being in trauma, that can trigger the DKA sometimes too. The you mentioned non-compliance and there's a lot that can go into that, right? You mentioned the, the socioeconomic factors leading to a higher risk of this. So is it non-compliance? Is it not being able to afford it? Is it not understanding? So that's one of those you mentioned, that's where the pharmacist can come in and help educate, right? That's where your, your care coordination, your social work part of the team can help make sure that they can afford things. That's why it takes a team in a village and why these transitions of care are, are so, so important. Um, regardless if you were, you're bringing this up as the trauma ICU pharmacist. This is important in the ED. This is important for everybody. Yes, absolutely. We just, in summertime, um, we just see these young young kids that have type 1 diabetes. They may get into a car crash or they may went on a vacation and they forgot to take their insulin with them and they thought it was fine. But um, just more education on the risk of DKA and um, multiple DKA can, can have like probably long-term like kidney or even neurological damage. So it's not without any long-term consequences. So Janice, if you had to wrap up um, and kind of 
take some of your biggest points or highlights when you think of the management of diabetic ketoacidosis and some of the most important things to keep in mind? If you had to focus on a couple, what would those be? I think usually when I tell my learners two things. So first thing, most important to establish a correct diagnosis in the beginning that this is actually DKA. Going back to the chart to make sure your patient actually fits all the metabolic derangements um, and actually has DKA before you pull out and order everything in the DKA order set. Second is um, this is really a metabolic derangement disorder more so than a glucose problem. So making sure that all the chemistry, the pH, the anion gap are resolved more than just looking at the glucose level. That's the more important point. That's that's a really um, important point um, to highlight. And I, I, what a what a great kind of ending thing there. Now the listeners may be wondering, like, wait a second, hyperglycemic crises. You only talked about one crisis. That's right. So we focused on DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis today, but there's so much that goes into this. It's complex. We're talking about acid base and electrolyte. I think a lot of us in the ice as ICU pharmacists sneakily, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because you get to do fun physiology. You get to talk about lots of treatments, some drugs, a lot of non-drug treatments. Um, and you kind of think of the patient as a whole, but we're going to have a separate, Janice has uh, agreed um, to come back and we're going to have an episode kind of focusing on HHS um, and the other crisis and how that differs um, and some of those things. So don't worry, um, more to come here, but I thought um, there was just so much to cover. We wanted to focus the, the meat in our discussion today just on DKA itself. Um, so Janice, thanks again so much. Uh, what a pleasure, uh, learned so much and, uh, it was a blast having you on and, uh, getting to work with you. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And back for one of our most requested segments and, uh, by far and away, uh, one of my favorites, it is medicine in the media. And who better than to come back, our favorite toxicologist, Jimmy Leonard. Now, Jimmy is the assistant director of the Maryland Poison Center and an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. He is on Twitter at LeonardJBRX. Jimmy, thank you so much for coming back to what I think is one of my favorite things to do um, and talk about what actually would happen if the medicine and the media happen in real life. So we appreciate you joining us again. Well, thank you for having me. So we have three we have three kind of clips or things we want to dissect a little bit into. So these are on, for, for the listeners, these are on Netflix and Prime Video. So I'm guessing the majority of you have this. If not, you probably at least have a password. You could borrow it from somebody. So we're going to start um, with a Bullet Train. It's a, it's a movie on Netflix, and the, the clip in question starts at about 71 minutes into the movie. So the question is related, Jimmy, to snake antivenom use and use with multiple snake bites. So let's set the scene here. So Brad Pitt gets injected with snake venom in a, let me just say this, in a 10cc syringe, he gets the antivenom injection. So then later in the movie... 
In the movie time, it's 12 minutes. I have no clue how much time it is in real life. That obviously matters, so we'll, I'm putting that out there. Um, but he later in the movie, he gets bit by a snake again and says, I already got a dose of anti-venom in me today, so I'm good. All right, Jimmy, so talk through what would really happen. And let's just, for, for argument's sake, say that the anti-venom is the anti-venom that we know and love, Crofab. Sure. You know, uh, this is uh, perfect timing because it's now snake bite season. Mm-hmm. We had our first one a couple of days ago. In Maryland? In Mar- Oh, yes, of course, in Maryland, especially Southern Maryland. 25% oh, of them. Oh, yes. All oh, copperheads. <laughs> okay, yeah. continue. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I think of Maryland. I'm thinking of Baltimore. I forget Southern Maryland's like a whole different world. That makes, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, you, you get a lot, of, we get a lot of snake bites outside of the city. It's a good place to be. Lots, lots of snakes out there. Um, but this is exactly how it works, right? <laughs> so Fab AV for pit vipers, it has a half-life of 12 to 24 hours. It's basically just a fab molecule, right, that's hanging yep. around in the blood, and it's just going to bind up and scavenge anything, right? And, you know, unless you get, like, a massive, massive dose of, and of venom from the snake enough to overcome whatever you're given. I mean, 10 cc's, who knows whether that's, you know, all the dose or a small amount of the dose. Um, but if you get enough, right, it'll just, it'll just scavenge it up. I mean, even things like Fab 2, so the other anti-venom that's available here for pit vipers, is a half-life of 130 hours. So you're protected for a while. We also used to get calls about delayed serum sickness yeah. with whole IgG from pit vipers that were like days to a week out, right? And essentially, these are just big protein molecules that need to be cleaved and cleared by, you know, plasma proteases, right, or proteases. So it, it's not a short half-life. It is. I mean, it would be a protection. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't recommend trying to make your own anti-venom antibodies by being bitten by a snake. That is not a good way to do that. That is a good way to end up in the hospital with a bunch of swelling. We actually had one, oh man, there's a case of a guy who I think he was trying to breed two exotic snakes. Um, and he was just, he was found dead in his home because he had been bitten by one of them and it was one that caused paralysis. So, oh, yeah, didn't oh. have antivenom, right? And if you need antivenom, so this is, a, this is a plug for poison centers partly. So, of course, coordinate with your poison centers at 800-222-1222. But we all have access to a repository of information for where you can get antivenom for exotic snakes. And these are primarily zoos, right? So back in the early 2000s, we got a call about a woman who had been bitten by a monocled cobra in the winter near White Marsh Mall. And I was like, first off, no snake is out and when it's 30 degrees out. So this was something that was in her home. But they actually had to go up to the Philadelphia Zoo. I think the like state police did, went up there, got the antivenom and brought it down so she could be treated here. Right, so the zoos have it, and we have a good resource to figure out which zoo has antivenom for you. Well, that's a really good plug too, because 
Yeah, in San Antonio, Texas, right? They're going to be pretty familiar with snake bites. But for these exotic zoo ones, it's going to happen in areas that you're going to have way less um, comfort or like just incidences of snake bites. So really good, really good plug there. And a couple things here. Wanted to start with something. So medicine, the media, uh, yes, it's going to skew on the side of, of having fun with some of it, but this was a perfect example of, if you've watched Bullet Train, the movie, this is the most realistic thing about the movie itself. Um, and I'm not sure anybody's ever gotten anti-venom as quick as as he got the moment after he got um, injected with the venom. So, um, a really good point. I, I thought that was funny. Um, and... A great way to start it off, Bullet Train on Netflix, um, a great anti-venom thing. So uh, the next the next show is called Three Pines. So the first one was a movie. The next one's a show. The, the show's on Prime Video. So um, spoiler alert if you're listening or if you're going to watch it. So Three Pines. So this is season one, episode two of what we're talking about. And the show, the setting is it's based on detectives solving murders in a small remote I think it's Canadian town. Um, and the premise, um, so this clip happens at about 11 minutes or so into the episode. And the premise is that a murderer poisoned someone's drink with enough niacin to A, cause a hot flash and make them take off their leather gloves in, this is like the dead of Canadian winter. Um, and B, they found that in the autopsy report, that there were um, niacin blood levels were 20 times the upper level of normal. Wait, wait, let me, Jimmy, let me phrase actually how it was in the show. There were 20 times the normal dose of niacin in her blood. I don't know what that means either. But then basically she took her gloves off and got electrocuted. So my question for you, how much niacin would cause this and how ungodly big must this lady's drink have been to unknowingly drink this much. Oh man, you're asking for math. That's where we're going with this. That's where, that's where we want to break this down is math. I thought you loved <laughs> math. I thought you, I thought I, I do. Thought I'm kidding. <laughs> I am. I am. I am pro calculation. Um, so about 2000 milligrams normal-ish dose for the extended release, that'll get you at 9.3 mice per ml. Top end is eight, right? So probably 20 to 40 grams would do the trick, right? I don't I, I don't know what niacin exactly tastes like. I bet but, awful. I mean, Every grams, supplement is terrible. Have you ever had, like none uh, of them taste good because they're supplements. No. So there's no way right. it tastes good. I haven't ground right. it up either, but I'm going on record. It can't be good. I mean, we could we could try it. That's the quarterback. That's how you know I'm talking to a toxicologist. Not, He's like, well, we can not, see. Not a lot. <laughs> Just a little bit. Normal, healthy volunteers. Totally safe. <laughs> sure. Um, so, I, I mean, 20 to 40 grams, if it was pure, that's talking about 20 to 40 grams of powder. Just powder, which is, I mean, 10 to 15 milliliters or grams is a mouthful. Right? So. She's chugging it ounces, ounces to probably make it reasonable. And while, yes, this would cause a hot flash, this is also a really good way to end up in the hospital with liver failure, hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, 
acute renal failure, coagulopathy. We've actually heard, we had one case where a guy was, he took a big dose of niacin trying to um, pass a urine drug screen. Yeah, yep. Um, and he actually, he did pass the urine drug screen, but it's because he was in the hospital for like two weeks. And by that point in time, he cleared out everything, so he was able to pass. When they tested him in the hospital, he, in fact, did test positive for THC. So I do not recommend it. Small taste, sure, just to see what it tastes like. Large quantities, do not. What is it with niacin? Man, everyone loves it. It's like the it's like the weird drug. I uh, like people try to use it to pass drug tests, talking about causing hot flashes and people dying. I don't know, but that is uh, the, th- these things just bother me, and that's why we're talking it out. But you, there is a way. It's more likely you made it seem more likely to me than I thought it was before we started recording. So it just would have had to be the pure pure powder, and then the person would have. If they hadn't been electrocuted five minutes later, they probably would have just had every other awful adverse effect kill them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Yeah. And the half-life is really short. So who knows? You know, if you know she died really fast after, it could have been that 20 grams. If it was days after, Lord knows. Maybe it was 200 grams. Well, you could tell they Googled something because they did mention that they put it in their drink 30 minutes before her death. So, I mean, mm. obviously thinking of onset. So the, there you go. the consultant got paid there for sure. Um, all right. This is by far the most fun one. Let's dive into number three. Featured on Netflix, Inception, one of my favorite movies. If you haven't seen this yet, A, what are you doing? Finish listening to this episode and then go watch it. But B... If you haven't seen Inception, some of our discussion probably isn't going to make sense because it's Inception, right? And we'll just leave it at that. Just FYI. All right. So the the premise that we're talking about here is the dream maker describes needing sedation for sleep deep enough to create three layers of dreaming yet leave the inner ear function unimpaired so that when they get kicked, they wake up. Now, let's, a couple more, I think, pertinent things here. All right, so this scene, he starts describing the sedative about 51 minutes into the movie. And so you, the, the other two setups that matter to this discussion here is you see a setup right before they go to sleep, and then they basically wake up on the plane. And that's like all you see. So, extremely powerful. You have three levels of dreaming I, there's not a single thing of oxygen. I didn't see any vital. I don't see anything. So knowing, I, I just want to give you all the information based on what we've told you, what drug do you think they, what sedative do you think they used in Inception? And then give us, talk to us about why, how you came to that decision. So I think that they had studied ancient Haitian practices as to how to make zombies. <laughs> so back in the 1800s, Haitian priests would take people who were like criminals and had been involved or were like shunned by society for legal reasons and make them into zombies. And the way that they did this 
is they would make a, a poison that was a combination of powder from several different creatures, insects, um, snake, spider, human bone, all powdered up, right? And then they added the magic ingredient, which was puffer fish, which contains, contains tetrodotoxin, right? And so they would like wipe it on the person or inject them with it. Well, if you guys know tetrodotoxin, it's in fugu, right, for a puffer fish. It's a sodium channel blocker. It basically makes you look mostly dead. And in some of the cases where people have, like, been poisoned by this, they remember being declared dead and, like, in the morgue, you know, for, and just, like, they were looking, they looked for all intents and purposes dead. And then they just came back to eventually, days later. And if they survived the first few hours, essentially you would recover enough of your respiratory function to breathe and not die. And then you come back to, so you weren't dead. You're just mostly dead. Either that is they used the stretching machine and they just hid this part from it. They used the stretching machine from princess bride. And again, mostly dead. This is why, in case anyone's wondering why Jimmy is the best, we found an answer to this. That's amazing because it hits all of the things. Because if you look at it, they do look dead. They look comatose, and they're not doing anything extra. Um, and they almost all died too, right? Like the whole that's the whole thing of Inception. I guess I should said spoiler, but that movie's been out for a long time. So if I'm spoiling Inception, we got bigger things to talk and about. And I'll be honest, when when the zombie when it like worked to actually like have somebody come back, they would they would capture the spirit, right, and force them to work in the fields. Um, and it didn't always work for them to come back because many of them actually did just die. Right? So a few of them were able to come back because they survived this tetrodotoxin poisoning. Same thing, right there with you. I think I think we figured it out. We cracked it. We did it. I was like, you should see. I have these notes. I was like, oh, man, if he says I have all these drugs listed and I have like a point on all of them, a lot of them, a lot of them hit on inner ear function. I will say I hung my hat on. That might be my argument against a lot of the other things. Um, All right. Things I did not expect to be talking about 1800 um, Haitian practices, but answered the most important question of. How did they dream and do all the layers in Inception? Um, Jimmy, medicine in the media, you answered three pressing questions. Um, anything you need to promote, let the people know about, um, uh, things that you uh, want to highlight at all? Uh, like always, the Poison Center is here for you guys. 800-222-1222, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We are here. We are here to answer questions. If you call and wake me up at 2 o'clock in the morning to ask why this person is dreaming and from inception, I will be upset. (laughs) If you have a clinical question, though, I'm all ears. And again, the bullet train question, no, not at 2 o'clock in the morning. Any other time, I'm all yours. They shouldn't need to be calling because if they're listening now, they should already have the answers. That's exactly They've right. They've got it figured out. So if hopefully, there's other medicine in the media, though, that they want to know about, not at 2 o'clock. Yeah, if you have things you want to – if you want 
uh, Jimmy and I to talk about, send an email, pharmacytodose at gmail.com, and we... And I have a running list of things. I can't watch medical shows for this reason. Like I'll see people post stuff like the new Amsterdam and things. I don't know how you and medicine can watch that because when they talk about that stuff, that's all I think of. It just bothers me. Um, And it bothers me so much. We're talking through it in real time. So uh, this is great. Jimmy, thanks so much. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to uh, Janice and Jimmy um, for coming. What an awesome, uh, awesome episode featuring those two. Um, reach out. Let me know what your thoughts are um, on social media at pharmacy to dose, T-O to dose, uh, via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Uh, the reference list uh, with the articles and guidelines and things we discussed about DK and things, they're going to be featured in the podcast episode description as well as at pharmacytodose.com, the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.